Tato. Good morning, everybody. And hello to those of you who join us online. Later, we're one body of faith. Lovely to have you with us also. Did you know Jesus had some close friends, not all of whom were among the 12 disciples? Why wouldn't he have close friends like any other human being? I think Jesus is sometimes more human than we give him credit for. Don't think that because he loved the whole world and gave his life for all of humanity that he didn't hang out sometimes with select friends. The Gospels hint that he did. And I think this fact doesn't nullify his love for the whole world. The nature of love at its best, I would suggest, is that it has sometimes a focus on the few, on family, on a spouse or partner, on children, it can be very focused while remaining open to touching the lives of anyone who crosses our path. The one doesn't exclude the other. It seems that Jesus loved the many while delighting in the company of the few. Mary, Martha and Lazarus, three siblings, were among Jesus' closest friends. Jesus was comfortable enough in their company to enjoy a leisurely lunch with them where he mildly chastised Martha for wanting her sister's help in the kitchen while Mary was lazily tucked up at Jesus' feet. This is the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and wiped them with her hair. Even among these three closest of Jesus' friends, we see the distinct personality of each. Mary expressing devotion to Jesus in a strikingly intimate way that differs from her sister. But before we bag Martha as the less loving sister, it's worth remembering that she was preparing lunch for Jesus and the other guests. She too loved and honored Jesus. What's more, she had great faith in him as Israel's Messiah. Our passage today makes that very clear. Jesus' relationship with this family is close, intimate, loyal, and committed. And it flows both ways. He loves them, and they love and believe in him. This makes the story that John recounts of Lazarus dying and Jesus reviving him a truly bittersweet one. It's too shallow to think of Lazarus emerging from the grave and conclude that this is simply a triumphant story where Jesus wins the day and Mary and Martha joyfully get their brother back. Quite aside from the fact that the chief priests plot to kill Lazarus after Jesus raises him because he's embarrassing evidence of Jesus' power and popularity this account from John of Jesus raising Lazarus is a real roller coaster of emotion. It confronts us with what it means to be loved by Jesus and to love and believe in Jesus. We're going to consider three features from the story this morning. Each feature will tell us something about Jesus and about our relationship with him. The first feature is... Jesus' distressing delay in visiting his friends. 
we too sometimes experience a distressing delay in God responding at our time of need. The second feature is Jesus' identification with the depths of our human anguish, our distress. Jesus knows suffering. He is compassionate, even if he's inexplicably late. The third feature is Jesus' invitation to believe in him in the darkest moments of life, which is possible only because he has tasted death on our behalf. So that's where we're going this morning. This story is saturated with sadness, distress, and death. And so too are our lives at times. It's precisely at those times that Jesus invites us to believe that he is the resurrection and the life because he himself has endured death, human anguish, even the delay of divine intervention, as we will see. Let's join Mary, Martha, and the deceased Lazarus as Jesus pays them a visit. In case we are in any doubt of Jesus' love for these three siblings, we read in John's narrative these two statements. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And two verses later, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now John, no doubt, tells us twice of Jesus' love for this family because that two-day delay in visiting a sick friend looks anything but love, doesn't it? Jesus might have been a close friend to these three, but as the Son of God, he could be an awkward friend. We have the benefit as gospel readers of hearing Jesus say to the disciples, while he deliberately delays visiting a dying friend, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Mary and Martha had no such benefit. All they know is that Jesus, their family friend, could have come sooner, but chose not to. Martha says to Jesus with anguish when he finally arrives, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says exactly the same thing when she sees Jesus. Both women knew that Jesus could heal the sick. Why then had he hung back and not visited till their brother was dead? Just process that for a moment. It must have been quite painful for these women to send for Jesus and have him delay coming till it was too late. Now sure, we read of Martha saying to Jesus, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. But there's no hint here that she believes that Jesus will raise her brother from the dead. That's clear when Jesus cryptically says to her, your brother will rise again, to which Martha responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's not expecting to get him back in this life. Whatever she thinks Jesus may ask of the Father on their behalf, she does not expect her brother to walk out of the grave. She's grieving. 
She's quite possibly just asking for divine comfort. I want to pause the story here for a moment to make my first point this morning, which is to note the painful reality that there are times in our lives when we beg Jesus to show up and he doesn't. Now you might object to this and say, Jesus is always with us. Yes, but I'm talking about receiving answers to desperate prayers. There are times when we are in pain, like Mary and Martha as they watched their brother die, and we ask God to deliver us, to intervene, to bring some relief, and there is no response. Nothing. Cosmic silence. No sense of God's presence, no sense of peace, no relief. Some of you will know this experience acutely. Some of you may have hammered on heaven's door in distress and deep need. You might be doing so now. And the Jesus you know as Lord and friend is silent. Some of you might be right now distressed because God is nowhere to be found. You are watching something die, a dream, a hope, a career, perhaps a loved one, perhaps a marriage, perhaps the hope of being married, faith itself, any number of things, the health of the planet. You're watching something die, or someone, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. We had three profound testimonies from the stage five weeks ago. I thought they were fantastic. Susan Barter, Holly Brooker, and Zachary Colpin all shared of moments in their life when things truly fell apart for them. A brain tumor, a rejected application to teacher's college, a failed business, debilitating back pain, multiple setbacks, and lives dedicated to God. Susan Holly and Zach are using their talents today in remarkable ways to glorify God. And they can testify to the hand of God bringing beauty out of ashes and fulfilling quite unique life callings in creative ways that they never would have dreamed of. But I have no doubt that they would have asked in their darkest moments of life, where are you, Lord? As we all do. There are times Jesus delays. It's not heresy to say that. It's an observable feature of Christian faith. And it's painful. One of the real irony, ironies of the account of Jesus raising Lazarus is that one of the most joyful stories in Scripture is also one of the saddest. Listen to John's account of what happens when Jesus meets Mary in her grief. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly distressed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. Once again, I want to suggest Jesus is more human than we may give him credit for. Never mind that he's about to raise Lazarus and present him back to his astonished sisters. These are not pretend tears preceding a happy reunion. This is genuine shared grief. 
This is human sorrow at the reality of death. Lazarus will, of course, uh, still die a natural death. He's not being raised yet to eternal life, just temporarily revived to demonstrate Jesus' power over death. But even Jesus' power over death and the sure promise of future resurrection for those who believe does not stop Jesus weeping with his friends in this moment. The sorrow and the grief we face in this life as we encounter suffering are very real. And add to that the confusing and distressing pain we experience as believers when we cry out, Lord, help me. And Jesus inexplicably delays and we see that life has some truly painful moments. But consider for a moment that even as he delays, for some mysterious purpose that may ultimately bring God glory and it may even take our faith to a deeper place, Jesus still genuinely grieves and laments with us. He may sometimes delay his response to our prayers, but he's not callous, he's not indifferent. He weeps with us as we endure suffering. Everything I've said so far is leading up to the I am statement of Jesus to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life, he says as they discuss the passing of her brother. It's such a positive statement, followed by such a remarkable miracle that I think we can too easily gloss over the sadness that saturates the story. But I suggest that Jesus' statement only carries weight in light of the reality of suffering and death human distress, and delayed answers to prayer. It is the trauma of life in a broken, sinful world that Jesus answers with his death and resurrection. The life that flows from the cross flows into the darkest places of our lives. We are Lazarus, wrapped in grave clothes, stinking from days of decay, We are Mary and Martha, weeping over a deceased brother and asking Jesus where he's been. Where he's been is where he's going, to death and back. Where he's been is to the grave, just like Lazarus, to be wrapped in burial cloths, to taste the consequence of sin, to lose all light, like you and I in our darkest moments in life, to hang on a cross and say to his father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced divine delay. Even the absence of God that we feel at times in life, he has acutely felt on our behalf. That's where he's been. Jesus fully identifies with the depths of our distress. And that's my second point today. When he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. His words would be empty and heartless if Jesus himself was not on his way to submit to death in obedience to the Father, 
and then to transcend death in the power of the Spirit, opening up the way to eternal life for those who believe. His words would be an insult to Martha, his close friend, if he was not about to become the crucified Messiah. Martha and Jesus discuss future bodily resurrection on the last day, which the majority of Jews believed in, and Jesus, in line with the Pharisees, affirmed over against the Sadducees. But Jesus shifts the conversation with Martha from the subject of future resurrection to talking about himself. Biblical commentator Don Carson says, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him alone who can provide it. Jesus doesn't just say to Martha, yes, your brother will be raised at the last judgment. That's a given for them both. What he says essentially is, it's me who raises him. The only way to transcend death and survive the last judgment is through faith in me. I am the basis for hope and eternal life. What's more, that resurrection life is prefigured now, this side of death, through faith in me, says Jesus, and new life in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is offering Martha and Mary and the temporarily raised Lazarus and everyone who hears his words new life in him both now and in the age to come. Commenting on this passage, theologian N.T. Wright explains how resurrection life in Christ is both present and future. He writes, Those who believe are given a real new identity in the present, a life which now will never die. In other words, drawing on how John puts it elsewhere, the believer now possesses already a divinely given immortal life which will survive death and be re-embodied in the final resurrection. Now for the third point this morning. After declaring himself the resurrection and the life, Jesus asks Martha a direct question. Do you believe this? That's a question he asks every one of us. In the face of our own death, or as we stand with Jesus where death lingers nearby, or in our distress and anguish, whatever its cause, or in the shame of contributing to the sinfulness and the darkness of this world. Jesus looks us in the eye and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? The one who swallowed death so that we may live confronts us with the question of faith. Martha offers offers the model answer we read. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Martha professes her faith in Jesus. She does not yet know that he will resuscitate her brother, but that's beside the point. She declares him Lord, God. That's her salvation. 
We know the Gospels well enough to know that a profession of faith in Jesus is necessary for entering into right relationship with God. There is no participation for us in the divine life outside of the one who declared himself the way, the truth, and the life. It is through faith in Christ alone, we sung in Christ alone, that we find forgiveness for sin, reconciliation with God, and spirit-filled life in all its fullness. It is also through faith in the resurrected Christ that we have hope for the life to come. We know all this, but I want to suggest that a declaration of faith doesn't happen only once in life. Nor does Jesus confront us only once with the question, do you believe this? I think Jesus asks us repeatedly, do you believe this? Because there are many moments in life where Lazarus is lying nearby, where something painful confronts us, and God delays our deliverance, and our faith is tested to breaking point. Though remember, As Jesus asks, do you believe this? He does so with tears in his eyes. He weeps with us in our distress. So don't hear Jesus' question as a cruel test. Rather, hear it as a compassionate invitation. It's an invitation to affirm that Jesus knows all about human suffering. Jesus gently asks each of us, do you believe that I have tasted death? Do you believe that I, God, share in your suffering? Do you believe that despite the sorrow and the grief, I will make all things new? The resurrection and the life answers crucifixion and death. Jesus answers the deepest fears, the darkest moments, the most enveloping shame, the unbearable suffering of losing a loved one, the trauma of human betrayal, the loneliness of an alienated life, the troubled existential questions of our existence. Jesus steps towards us, inviting us to believe precisely in the moments when darkness threatens to envelop us. That's when he offers us life in him. Jesus wasn't asking Martha if she believed in any old time when they were hanging out as good friends. He was asking her at a very specific time, the tragic time of her brother's passing. In the face of death, consumed by grief, Jesus asks her, do you believe? That's the context of his question for her. And I believe that's the context of his question for us also as believers. It is not a harsh test in our darkest hour. It's a compassion-filled, life-giving invitation to resurrection life today from the one who died and rose on our behalf. I'm a spiritual director who sees people on a regular basis so that they can explore their journey of faith through life in dialogue with someone. One of my directors has given me permission to share the following details. This single woman in her 30s had a difficult family upbringing. Her parents 
fought a lot. Stable, loving human relationships are hard for her to understand. She has a deep faith in God and a sense of God's love for her, but it's human company, human companionship that she finds a little more tricky to trust in. It's hard for her to believe that she can have close connections to people. Until recently, she had resigned herself, even as a believer, to not overcoming in this life the negative effects of her upbringing, which meant for her the absence of close human companionship. Guess what Jesus says to her? Do you believe? Do you believe that I can bring life where you feel death? Do you believe that a family that fought doesn't have to define your future? The last time we spoke, she shared with me how she sensed God inviting her to believe that she could begin to transcend the emotional and psychological barriers that prevent her from forming close connections with people. And she was quietly excited by that prospect. She was emerging from a grave, if you like. That shift for her feels like a gentle miracle. After years of vigilant self-protection, keeping people at something of a distance, Jesus' invitation to that woman to accept that he is the resurrection and the life means the possibility of close human relationships, companionship, love. At the very least, it means not going through life, shielding herself so, so vigilantly that such relationships are hard to form. May her Lord lead her from death to life in that dimension of her life. What's your equivalent of that believer's challenge? What's your Lazarus? That lingering death that Jesus wants to answer. What's the place in your life where Jesus says to you today, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe? Let him address your pain. Let the Lord of all creation who has tasted death on our behalf recreate that corner of your life that you have struggled to believe even God can enter and transform. Allow Jesus to weep with you, even if you're mystified at his delay. And then let him turn to you and ask gently and directly, do you believe in me? He longs to bring you resurrection life. Shall we pray? Lord, you are our friend too, but it's a joy to think of you as having these close human relationships, truly human, also a little terrifying to read the gospel stories, to think what Mary and Martha endured, even Lazarus, as he's raised and then persecuted by the religious authorities. Lord, it cost people to know you, but you grieve, Lord, the suffering that we grieve. You grieve the anguish that we endure. You have deep compassion. And though we do not understand why you always do not Turn up when we ask, Lord. When you do, it's to come alongside us with love, with compassion. As one who has suffered, 
died and risen from the dead, and as one who offers us life in any circumstances. Lord, it is hard to say we believe in the most painful moments of life. It's in those times that we doubt, that we fear, that we can become angry with you even, that we can close the door to faith. Lord, help us hear you and not reject that question. Help us say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe, so that we may have your life. Amen.